We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Welcome back to Oklahoma Family Network's podcast called We Saved You a Seat. My name is Tamara Crabtree, and today I have the pleasure of introducing you to someone I had never met before, Erin Hartzell. Her 13-year-old daughter, McCartney, had multiple surgeries in her first year of life to fix a heart defect that she was born with. Oklahoma Family Network desires to bring family stories which will educate and bring awareness to important health concerns which impact the lives of families. And today, Erin does a beautiful job walking us through their journey and sharing tenderly how and why focusing on CHD is important and yet could be very triggering for others in the community. Thank you again for joining us for another episode of We Saved You a Seat. I guess for our listeners, you and I have never met before, so it's it's kind of fun for me to get the opportunity to sit and ask questions about your story, the moments that you want to share to help bring awareness. I would love, from my standpoint, you to introduce yourself to me by telling me a little bit about you, your family. Well, my name is Erin Hartzell. Um, I have two girls, McCartney. She is my 13-year-old. She's my heart baby. And then I have Ellery, who is 10, and she was born heart healthy. Uh, McCartney, when I was pregnant with her, before I had her, we didn't know that she was going to have issues when she was born. So a lot of people do know ahead of time, but we did not. So just something they couldn't pick up on the fetal ultrasounds, the anatomy scans. They just didn't see it there. If you think about it, a baby, a newborn baby's heart is the size of a wall that they say. So that's hard to, it's hard to look at, especially, you know, through an ultrasound. Uh, So I guess that would explain that. She was born on time. And when she was born, she didn't cry. So they took her away from me immediately. And they took her to uh, to the nursery and put her in the oxygen tent and I didn't get to see her for a while so I knew that something was going on. They seemed to think that everything was fine after that and you know we had a fun stay in the hospital for two days. Uh, right before we were going to be released actually the it was the nurse took a listen to her one more time before we were getting ready to be discharged and she said you know I heard a murmur. So I'm just going to have the the doc kind of check it out. And I'm sure it's nothing, you know. And um, the doc listened to her and was like, oh yeah, I hear that too. So we're just going to call somebody in and do an echo and just check it out. You know, it was kind of concerning, but they try to, they try to put you at ease. Like, oh, this happens all the time. It's usually, you know, nothing. It'll be fine. So they brought the ultrasound tech in. We got through that. And we were still thinking we were going home. And they they told us, uh, we're sending an ambulance from St. Francis Children's to come and pick you up. And we were like, oh, okay. They're like, we don't know what's going on. We just need to investigate it further. So they send the ambulance. And I don't know why 
I will never forget this. The people in the ambulance are wearing flight, like life flight suits, you know, like uh, parachute looking people. I don't know why they did that when they're in the ambulance, but it was terrifying. And uh, they put her in a little like see-through box, put her in the back of the ambulance. I got to ride with them. And, you know, her dad was following us and we went to St. Francis and we just were in the NICU for a while there before they discovered everything that we had to deal with. Um, and she, McCartney, when she was born, she was eight pounds. So she's a big old baby. We're in the NICU where it's mostly little tiny babies. And I just felt that it was just like, what are we doing in here with this giant healthy baby? And, you know, from there we got the, we got an echo done. We got an EKG done. And then that's when we got to meet the cardiologist and they take you to the room and they sit down with a piece of paper and that's where the CHD comes into play because it's a defect. So they draw for you on a piece of paper what a healthy heart is going to look like. And then they draw for you what they think your child's heart looks like, which, you know, not coming from a background of like, knowing anything about cardiology, it's just all sounds very terrifying because you don't know what any of it means. And uh, once they tell you what they think is going on, you like have to absorb that and deal with like postpartum and healing. And it's just like the craziest time of my life, for sure. I don't even think that if we had known before she was born that it would have made it any better, honestly. <laughs> um, but that's when you just kind of have to hit the ground running and start researching so that you can understand and, and advocate for your child, you know? Yeah. So was she your first baby? Yes. So she was your first baby. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't know what a, what a normal going home with your baby looked <laughs> right? like other than what you had experienced through friends, right? So here you are you're not having what your other friends have had. You're now being rushed to the NICU and you're at the hospital there. I'm just sitting here, like you said, you the postpartum piece, the, just the emotional trauma of not knowing exactly what's going on and having, to, having this new diagnosis or new, new words with the cardiologist coming in and kind of explaining things. Were they able to give you a diagnosis at that point? Um, kind of walk us through a little bit about that. Yeah, well, um, of course, the doctor was like, we don't know 100% because we can't see very well around the backside. But what we think that she has is called total anomalous pulmonary venous return. So you just have to kind of break that down. So total means all of it. Anomalous, they stray from what they expect to be happening. And then the pulmonary venous return is the blood that is oxygenated from the lungs, how it gets back to the heart. So it returns to the heart. So they thought that all of the pulmonary veins were emptying into somewhere other than where they're supposed to. So the reason why she was having trouble feeding, latching on, blew around the mouth, blue toes, was because she wasn't getting 100% oxygenated blood through her body. And I don't know for sure, but I think they passed a law 
after McCartney was born that they put a pulse ox on all newborns. I'm not sure um, to measure their oxygen saturation levels because it's the cheapest, quickest, easiest way to spot issues, uh, heart issues and other issues like that. And um, she, I think, you know, a normal healthy baby's saturations are 99 to 100. She saturated in the lower 90s, upper 80s. That's the first diagnosis. They did also say she had a very large atrial septal defect. So a big hole in between the chambers of the atria. Had she actually had total anomalous pulmonary venous return, that ASD would be what was keeping her alive because it was allowing at least partially oxygenated blood to cycle through her heart. So um, once she did have surgery, that wasn't her final diagnosis, but that's what she was diagnosed with initially. Wow, that's a lot to take in as a new yeah. parent <laughs> and to have the new baby and then it's like, we're not really understanding all of it as a, as a new parent. Okay, so now walk me through the next step. Were y'all able to stay there? Were y'all transferred again? Kind of walk us through the next little bit taking care of this um, first piece to the puzzle. Yeah, we, uh, we stayed in the NICU and this is right sh shortly after they had just finished building on the panda part, you know, the children's part of the hospital. The top floor wasn't even open. That's where the current NICU is. So we were kind of in like, this like holding area, I guess. Um, they had actually just launched, this is in 2009, so this was a while ago, but they had just launched their pediatric cardi cardiology program there. They had brought a very well-known heart surgeon out of retirement from Dallas. He came up to start the program and a, another very well-known heart surgeon from Chicago. She came to help him. So by the grace of God, we were there months after those doctors had arrived. And so we didn't have to travel. I think now transfer to Oklahoma City now for most of the heart surgeries. Um, but at that point in time, we got to stay there. We, we stayed in the NICU for about a week trying to figure out how to feed, uh, feed the baby so that she would gain weight because the goal if you're going to have to have surgery is put on weight so that <laughs> you know when you're healing that doesn't take you out um so that was a challenge it was it was really hard for um mccartney to eat consistently she would wear out in the middle have to take a break eat a little bit again you know so it's kind of like an all-day kind of thing but we had initially i think they wanted to do surgery at three months old with her feeding issues we moved that up to one month old so we took her home for a few weeks that was very stressful <laughs> like a watch her sleep at night kind of stressful at the hospital it's a little bit more comforting because you have machines that can alarm if you know her breathing changes or if her heart rate changes but at home it's like oh geez we're by ourselves what do we do you know she had surgery at a month old and when the surgeon got in there it wasn't what they expected um so they diagnosed her with total veins when i got in there they found that she only had partial veins so most of her veins were routed properly 
the surgeon said that when he opened her, he said, oh, why did we do surgery this early? Because she wasn't as bad as they thought. And they, he was just, uh, we could have waited longer. You know, that's out of our hands. But uh, he, he did the repair. She ended up having one vein that instead of emptying into the heart was emptying into her superior vena cava. So it just didn't grow all the way through. So they routed it around the back side of that back to where it was supposed to be. They closed up that, that atrial septal defect. And I think that's all they did that time. And she was in the, the PICU after that. They had individual rooms and we got our own nurse for the first couple of weeks we were in there. Uh, that was tough, uh, seeing her come out of surgery. They don't really prepare you for what that's going to look like, but it's, uh, it's like swelling, lots of tubes <laughs> and wires, and it's just, it's uh, a lot more. I guess like you learn to compartmentalize a lot of things, and you just try not to think too far ahead, you know, and I just wasn't thinking that far ahead. And when I saw her, I was just like, oh my God, my baby. Um, and she, of course, she had like not a normal recovery. And I say normal, there's nothing really normal in the PICU, but you know, <laughs> uh, expected to come off the ventilator at this time, expected to be out of here in 10 days. She didn't really work like that. I think she was intubated for three to four days after surgery. They stopped her paralytics. They were like, we're going to extubate her today. And they did. And she struggled. So they put her in this oxygen bubble over her face. Um, and they thought that that would be good enough, but it wasn't. So she had the nasal cannula. Uh, she had that for quite a while. We spent two weeks in the NICU or the PICU, and then they were like, we're going to move you up to the surgical floor because we, we started to try to feed her and she could take a little bit through the NG tube. Uh, she couldn't eat with her mouth yet. So we were feeding her through the NG tube. Once we started to get um, a little bit more than what she was tolerating formula in her, she would just... Uh, projectile vomit right away. So we knew that something was going on. Why can't she breathe by herself? Why can't she eat? And it took us, God, we had chest x-rays every day. They had to put in the central line. They had to, they had to do a lot of things. Finally, they said, let's do a swallow study. So they take us down to radiology I had no idea this is how they do this with babies, but they they feed them a bottle with the contrast. They put them in like a like a half tube, and they strap them in and they flip them upside down, and they have like a live action X ray, I guess. And I remember the surgeon was standing behind me because I had the the lead gown on, so she was standing behind me, and she looked up at the screen and she goes, "Oh, yep." there it is. And I'm like, what? There what is? And she said, you see that diaphragm? That's supposed to move whenever she swallows in. It's not. And she said, we checked that nerve when we closed her up and we know it was good. So it wasn't severed, but it had to have taken a hit from like 
cauterizing something, some sort of damage. So her, uh, her diaphragm, diaphragm was paralyzed and so she couldn't hold food in her stomach because that couldn't lower back down. So that was good news because we didn't have to have surgery to fix that. I think it was around that time they were like, you're just going to have to tube feed her until that nerve heals. Okay, we can handle that, you know. Uh, so they said that that's probably what's causing her oxygen issues too. So we had to stay in the hospital until we got her in saturations around 95, 96. And it was around that time that they said uh, she also has another um, issue with her heart. She has a bicuspid aortic valve, which most people, when you're born, you have tricuspid. So you have three flaps. She only had two. She was doing fine with that for now. So we're not going to worry about that. We spent 31 days in the hospital. We went home and with NG tube, we had to take a class on how to drop that in case she ever got it out, which she did, of course. Um, babies are crazy. And uh, we had to watch the videos about shaking babies and all this stuff to to get to leave. We had to pass the car seat test, you know, we had to do all that stuff. We finally got to bring her home and that was a whole other set of stresses. Again, don't have machines to let you know if she's having problems. <laughs> Tube feeding all the time. That we did okay with. We had to write down everything that went in and went out. So we had to weigh diapers. We had to, uh, we had a notebook full of the ins and outs. We had to take her and weigh her every week at her doctor's office. Three months, I think, was how long she had that tube. So it really, in the grand scheme, it really wasn't that long. In the time, it seemed very stressful <laughs> to wash like a thousand of those little tubes and syringes and flush and all that stuff. But we finally got that tube out. Uh, shortly after we got her tube out, her aortic valve started causing issues. It made her head swell up really big and uh, she was really red. And so the cardiologist was like, we got to do something about that. So we took her to the cath lab and he did a balloon procedure, kind of like, you know, an angioplasty. Popped a balloon up in that valve and opened it up and that worked great. We stayed in the hospital one night, got to go home the next day. Her swelling went away pretty fast. So it's just amazing how well that did. And even to this day, her valve is great. Her repair is great. Uh, we haven't had any issues with that. Uh, we had recovery was uh, longer than expected. She developed other problems that no one can say whether they were or they weren't heart related. Uh, sometimes I feel like it's, it's all tied together anyway, but um, she developed a lot of uh, GI issues. We dealt with those for a few years, really. Once she turned six, she, I don't know, she just rallied. She was good to go. She's been good ever since. I know our story is not the norm for most heart patients that have to have repeated surgeries and, uh, you know, they have obstacles more along the way. Uh, our last checkup with the cardiologist, he says she's great and she may need a valve replacement, but she won't need it until she's old, um, probably in her 60s. 
that's impressive. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, she went through a whole lot that first, I mean, would you say that when was her last surgery, I guess? Well, she, all of her surgeries were in her first year. So first year. Yeah. You know, they were able to fix all of those, um, those pieces within that first year of her life. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's impressive. I'm just curious when you talked about tube feeding her and doing the NG tube and you did that for about three months, I think that's what you said. Yeah. Um, did you ever consider a G tube at that point? Did they have conversations about a G tube and, and putting that in or was it only the NG tube that they talked about? Just the NG. They didn't want to uh, do a G tube. They didn't want to do another surgery on her. So um, they, they couldn't, you know, give me a guesstimate of how long they thought she would be on that NG tube, but three months was it. <laughs> and you, and you were able to, to figure that out. I know that's something that's very stressful for a lot of families when they think about going home on an NG tube or with an NG tube, um, but you were able to do it and you were able to figure it out. Yeah. Um, my, my mom, she's a retired nurse, which is helpful for me. My dad is a retired physician, uh, not pediatric and not cardiology, but you know, he's got a lot more knowledge than most people. So I had a very good support system. Uh, so thankful for that, you know, because if I had worries, anything, I call my mom, she threw up the NG tube. <laughs> what do I do? Pull it yeah. out, Put it back down. <laughs> Having medical background in your family is pretty pretty nice to have as a yeah. great resource alone for sure. So, so talk to me about some of those resources. I mean, you talked to your parents were an amazing resource. It sounds like, um, what were some of the additional other things that you can think about that you utilized in services and supports and all of those things that you've talked about maybe or used within that first year of life for her? I mean, we actually, we used a lot of the support staff from the hospital, lactation consultants, guy lived in there forever we did, I think it was speech pathology that got her eating on a bottle, um, which strangely enough, things, the things you learn from these experiences, um, normal nipples on bottles, too fast for a heart baby. She couldn't handle that. They make triflow nipples where they, you can control the flow of them. And so we, we found those, we bought like 12 of them because they worked so well for her. You know, she wouldn't struggle as much because she didn't have to fight against the flow of the liquid. It's like these genius things. The biggest help for me personally were a couple of ladies came into McCartney's room when she was still intubated and they said, you know, hi, we're heart moms from into little hearts. Um, and you know, we have uh, heart kids and this is our experience. And it was just like, oh my God, somebody else knows what the heck I'm going through. It was like, it kind of kept me sane a little bit. They would come and see me, you know, can we come back next week? I was like, please do, <laughs> please come and see me, you know? And um, eventually I got to meet their heart kiddos and we had a big solid group there for a while. As our kids got older, we kind of spread apart because it's uh, it's hard to keep going back emotionally and visiting, you know, the craziest times of your lives. And when I think it's hard that some of us are done with it, you know, like me, there's the guilt there um, that my kid is pretty good to go now when I know that 
theirs aren't. And I think that's hard for them too. So it's like, you're there when you need them the most, but it's just not a relationship that's emotionally beneficial to everyone to keep up forever, you know? Um, but that was the most helpful for me at the time. I love knowing that they've been a great resource for you. I think there's a lot of families out there that kind of struggle with that, whether it be, whether it be oncology, you know, trying to offer that support to other moms when it's almost that survivor's guilt piece that's yeah. kind of there. We're okay. I'm sorry you're not. I, I guess I understand that a, a lot and how that plays out. So congratulations to her though, for, for being able to say that she is well and feels good and, and yeah. Talk a little bit about the development piece, and um, because obviously, if she spent that first year going through, you know, surgeries and and those hospital stays, and obviously she was in the hospital for several weeks after that first surgery. So, was there any delay at all with her development, her her physical development? It wasn't anything completely noticeable. Nothing her pediatrician was concerned about. Uh, most babies walk at like. I don't know, a year. She walked at like 13 or 14 months. So she really, really wasn't that far behind. Um, I was kind of shocked about that. We did hospital stays um, for her GI issues too. And uh, trying to <laughs> communicate that with teachers and stuff and, um, you know, try to <laughs> educate people to come on this journey with you, you know, and um, we were really really lucky to get a really good pre-k teacher who just kind of you know she was a champion for mac and kind of helped her through but it sounds like she was never really delayed super delayed by any means so that's impressive again once again yeah. she's just like the most resilient kid she never complains she's so like a little ray of sunshine all the time she was just born to fight you know <laughs> Are there restrictions in her life that she has? I mean, does she, is she able to do athletics? Is she able to, you know, gym class? I mean, I guess I think about families who have children with, you know, heart defects and um, heart disease. Yeah. It's, it, there's like some restrictions in their life. Yeah. Some kids uh, do have restrictions. Uh, she has none. Um, she, she's not a super um, athletic kid. She is, she's my artsy, uh, sketching, loves music, that kind of kid. So when we go riding bikes and she lags behind, I don't think it's because of her heart. <laughs> I think it's just because she's, she is not that athletic, you know, um, she's, she's allowed to do whatever she wants, really. I mean, you can't get any better results, I guess, than what she's experienced uh, right. at this point. So I know that first year yeah. was so hard for you guys. It's a really big stress. It really is. Um, and that's something I uh, talked about with some of the other heart moms, you know, about kind of the toll it takes on you. Because when you're trying to, you know, make sure your kid stays alive, other things get pushed back, you know. And um, it, it took us five, six years for us to be 100% worry-free, and that's not the case with most people. Most people are worry-free until they know that the next surgery is coming when they're 10, or when they know that eventually their heart transplant is going to reject and they're going to have to have a new one. You know, it's just like, I feel like we're the lucky ones, you know. Um, we'll co-parent together 
better than we did when we were together. You know what I mean? So, um, so we are divorced, but we have a great relationship. The kids are number one. And, um, my, my second daughter, she was born with issues, not heart issues, but other issues too. And so, you know, we've gone through it twice, really. After you've had a baby with heart, with a heart condition, did y'all navigate that differently? Um, when you were pregnant again for the second time, did, were there things that they looked at uh, and, and kind of just making that decision to have another one? The chances of having another one with heart issues, uh, pretty low for us. So uh, we weren't that concerned about it. We did have the big fetal echo where we had the cardiologist in there scanning everything. She, she was great. Everything was fine with her heart. Uh, she was born with uh, neonatal alloimmune thrombocytopenia. So she was born with uh, this freaking rare, weird blood thing. Um, we, we had to take her to the pediatric oncology office and we lived in there for a couple months, but that's it. Uh, she's fine now too. Just a different kind of stress. <laughs> so yeah, you took you went from one stress to a whole different kind of stress altogether. Yeah. What are some tips that you might give give other moms who are kind of walking through this newly new diagnosis with their baby? I, you did say something about you weren't sure if it would be would have helped knowing prior to uh, her delivery if it was there or not. What maybe some tips that you might have for for the moms out there who are kind of walking through this new journey? Uh, read, read, educate. <laughs> you know, your doctors, they're a good resource for you. They'll tell you what you should look up and what you shouldn't look up. Um, other people that have gone through it, that uh, the emotional side of it, that was the most helpful for that side for me. Um, it's just nice knowing that you're not on an island, you know, other people do have experience with the same things that you do. I think that not, I know it's easy to say, it's always easier to say when you're on this side of it, but um, not stressing about the things you have no control over. It's, it'll wear you down. It'll wear you thin. Um, you just have to concentrate on, I guess, just being the best you can for your kiddo, trying to get them healthy. And you got to keep yourself healthy too. It's the, I think the hard part in the middle, it's, it's, okay because you're so focused on other things but when you have time to sit down and like really think about things and you let your mind goes to the what ifs and the oh my god we were so close to losing them or you know you just you just can't go there <laughs> it's it's not a way to live so you got to just move forward keeping that one step in front of the other and sometimes it's yeah. minute by minute sometimes it's hour by hour or day by day so um so, yeah. And I loved what you said about finding, finding your people, finding your tribe, finding those who've been through it, who are going to be able to hold your hand through some of those very scary moments that have actually been there. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's very important. I, I think it, it, that's important for a lot of pieces in life. You know, I just, I just kind of am a bit. Yeah, for sure. Life is hard. We got to have our people. We got to have people yeah. around us. Can't do it all by yourself. You just can't. <laughs> What do you do to bring awareness or do you kind of have this hands-off approach now that you're kind of out of it or do you continue to tell your story? Obviously, you're telling your story through the podcast today and helping bring yeah. awareness that way. And But are there other things that you do? 
every year on her big surgery date, I always uh, make a big post, you know, on social media. Um, I try not to put a whole bunch about it because I know it triggers a lot of my friends and some of my um, heart mom friends, they avoid February because it's hard for them. Um, but it's not as hard for me. I try to raise awareness in a respectful way to my friends. You know, we do the wear red for women on Friday, um, go red for women. We usually do that. Um, we used to do a lot more, but we are kind of on the outside of it. Um, some of my other heart mom friends, they post facts. One in every 100 kid is born with a CHD. Um, you know, the pulse ox thing when they're born, that's so important. Just ask for it. I might have you talk about the whole month of February being a triggering month, because I think that is, I don't know, I, there's just a lot of real life in that statement. And I would love for you to maybe expand upon that thought for just a minute. Sure. Um, my heart mom friends that have transplant kiddos, uh, you know, their journey is different than the rest of ours because it's an everyday thing, trying to get meds on time, paid for at the pharmacy, uh, buy yearly biopsies, traveling to Houston or to Canada or wherever, you know, wherever you were for your transplant, three times a year, worrying about when it fails, worrying about, you know, all that stuff. So um, CHD month, a little stressful for them. Some of uh, the heart moms I know that have lost kids, you know, not every baby makes it. Um, that's hard for them too. Some of them will tell their story. Some of them don't like to talk about it. Uh, you know, I used to, with Men Little Hearts, um, I used to go visit parents in the hospital and talk to them about it. That was very um, essential in my healing. And when it got hard, when I started seeing them lose babies, lose kiddos, uh, that's when I stopped. It got too hard for me. But I have one friend, her son, he died when he was eight. I remember visiting him in the hospital three days before he passed away. And I'm still friends with his mom. And I see his siblings who are now much older than he was when he passed away. And uh, she still talks about it every day. You know, the pain that she feels that he's gone. And so it's just, that's just a reality, you know. Absolutely. Not all situations are where we have our surgery, our heart is fixed, and then we're over. We're done. Where, you know, we, we can walk yeah. away with a healthy heart. Um, there are stories out there that are are very hard for those who haven't experienced it to um, understand. And I think that's why it's so important to bring this conversation and this awareness and um, yeah. to our community so that we aren't afraid to have these conversations with young moms, children being diagnosed with this has not stopped. Right. And so for them to know where to go and, and how to find those supports is extremely important. So yeah, for sure. Well, I appreciate you being one of the, um, one of the moms that can come on here and tell us about the amazing outcome that you guys have had. And uh, does, does she like to talk about it? Does she tell her stories? Does she have scars that she, she talks about or is it she kind of really like, mm, we don't talk about it. She doesn't, she it doesn't even cross her mind. I remember one time it was like second grade. She said that a kid saw her scar because she were, had to wear polos to school. He saw the top of her scar and he said, you're, you're broken or something. And she was like, 
eh. <laughs> you know, she just doesn't care. It doesn't bother her. Well, it sounds like she is just a beautiful soul, beautiful heart. And I love that she is such the artist. So thank you for being here, for just being able to talk about some of those hard things that we don't always think about as someone that's just kind of a spectator of the CHD community. So I do, I really appreciate your help in, in helping bring awareness to this, this hard conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.